All right, we'll open up to 1 Timothy. Here's what I want to do tonight. Here's where I want to go tonight. Uh, we're we're going to go back to a phrase that we briefly looked at last week, and uh, we're going to spend a good portion of our time looking at that little phrase, and then we're going to go from there into chapter 2. Uh, so before we do that, uh, as you're turning to 1 Timothy 1, let me, let me, I know Aaron just prayed, but let me pray for us uh, tonight. Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to be here together. Um, I pray against all distractions tonight. I just pray that you give us clarity of thought and mind. And um, Lord, I just pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say from your word. Lord, speak to us. Uh, Lord, speak through me. And I pray, uh, I just pray that tonight is fun as we dig in. And uh, thank you for just what a gift uh, your word is to us. And uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. First Timothy 1. We're going to look at verse 18, okay? Y'all ready? All right, we're going to go anyways. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.18 says this, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Okay, so the phrase that I want us to deal with here at the beginning is this phrase, fight the good fight. Now let me, let me just back up here and say happy Valentine's Day, everybody, everybody, y'all, okay. You know, it's funny for me uh, to watch how different people respond to Valentine's Day. It's totally dependent on, you know, who they are, what their life circumstances are. And it's, you know, it's obviously gonna be different for people who are in a relationship as opposed to people who are not in a relationship. It's funny to see the difference there, especially, you know, you, you know the relationship people, they're obviously, especially if they're new in the relationship, they're kind of giddy towards each other and you know, sitting all close. I'm not gonna point at anybody, but there's a few people in here I've seen sitting all close. And, uh, but the single, the single people in the room, whoo, uh, single, single guys, single girls, it's funny to see how they're different in their response to Valentine's Day. They're very different. Single guys handle it way different than single girls. Now for single guys, I mean this is really for us not a time of like sadness or depression or mourning. Like this is a time of joy, celebration. And, and the reason is because we don't really have to worry about, you know, uh, buying flowers or remembering to buy flowers or, or chocolate or trying to think up something creative and romantic to do. We get to save our money, save our time, save our creative energy. And uh, we play video games instead or, you know, something like that. For, for girls, it's a little bit different. Uh, single girls, where, where, are all, where are all my single ladies at? Oh, yeah, man, okay. All right, guys, y'all, y'all saw that. So, so for, the single, for the single girls, it's different. And, and I, one of the reasons I just asked where y'all were is because I wanted you to see you're not the only one. Because one of the things that single girls do is they have this feeling of, I am the only girl in the universe without a boyfriend on Valentine's Day. You know, you see your roommate, and she has a boyfriend. You see your best friend, and she has a boyfriend. And, and so, you know, this is a time of sadness and depression for you. And, and, and so on Valentine's Day, when, when your roommate is, which, which some of you, you're sitting next to your roommate tonight, and they're like next to their boyfriend all close and everything, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, give me a break. But you know, for, on, on Valentine's Day, when, you're, when your roommate uh, or your best friend is, is, is out, you know, on their date, whoever's in a relationship status on Facebook, they're out on a date, or should be at least, uh, you get all of your other single lady friends together at your house, and you have pajama night. B-Y-O-B-I-C, uh, bring your own bucket of ice cream, and... <laughs> And you all cram onto the couch and you flip on the chick flicks and you just start, you know, having your little chick flick party night with ice cream and, you know, you just cuddle together and you just sob. Anyway, so I don't know what all happens in that time. But, you know, this is one of the reasons why, why guys don't like Valentine's Day, even the single guys, because the TV networks, they play to the single girls. Because the week leading up to and even the day of, you look on the TV networks and it's just chick flick, chick flick, chick flick, girl movie, girl movie, girl movie, like all over the place. I, mean, I turned the TV on yesterday. First thing that was on, which I, I flipped immediately, uh, was the notebook. And then they get to like the really, the really bad chick flicks, like Walk to Remember. And, and, then, uh, and then like that, um, and then that John Deere movie, and then, uh, or Deere John movie, whatever it is. And then, and then any Meg Ryan movie. And all, you know, you get the gist. And, but, but here's the thing. Um, as I was thinking through this, this week, like, I came to a very ter terrible realization. Like, you know, all these chick flicks, they're, they're, they're totally centered around this idealistic, chivalrous, romantic idea of this fight for a girl, or this fight for a guy, or this fight for love and romance. And as I was, as I was thinking through some of this this week, uh, I came to a terrible realization that my two favorite movies in the world are also centered around that 
fight for a girl and fight for romance. Now, guys, before you, you know, just get up and leave, let me, let me tell you, my, my two favorite movies are Dumb and Dumber and, and Braveheart. Now, if you've seen Dumb and Dumb, and Dumber, uh, Lloyd Christmas and Harry Dunn, uh, they are in love with who? Mary Swanson. Braveheart, the Mel Gibson char- character, I mean, the whole movie, really, for Dumb and Dumber and for Braveheart, centered around them chasing after this girl. But, you know, what I began to realize is you look at the entertainment industry, which, mind you, really has a big influence on us, shapes our culture, shapes the way we think, shapes the way that we act. This is the entertainment industry. It seems like everything in the entertainment industry is centered around, or at least in some way attached to, this idealistic approach to romance, this fight for the girl, this fight for the guy, this fight for love. You follow what I'm saying? And I started to think, you know, it's not just movies, it's TV, like The Office, I mean, that whole thing for a long time, for years, was Pam and Jim. Pam and Jim. What's going to happen to Pam and Jim this week? Now it's, now it's something else. You know, if you ever watched 24, depending on which season it was, uh, Jack Bauer, season to season, had some different girl that he was focused on. But then I started to think back through all the, all the TV shows that I loved growing up. Uh, Friends, kind of working backwards here. Friends. Who, who's the love thing going on? <laughs> Ross and Rachel. Yeah, okay. Ross and Rachel and, and uh, Monica and Chandler. But then moving a little bit further back, um, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I mean, Will, Will, he was always chasing a girl. I mean, he was a player. And then you go back even further than that uh, to, <laughs> not that far. You go back, you know, so, so Family Matters, that was another big one for me. You remember, did y'all, is that too, is that too far? Steve Urkel, and you remember the girl? Laura Winslow. Okay, we're going to go back a little further. Saved by the Bell. So, Zach Morris and my personal crush growing up was Kelly Kapowski. But then going even further, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Who was the, who was the girl in that? You remember? April, April O'Neil. Uh, April O'Neil, Raphael, Michelangelo, they kind of fought after her. But going even further than that, even Sesame Street. Elmo. I don't know if you paid attention to this or remember this, uh, but Elmo, he, he was always like kind of hitting on the, the human characters in Sesame Street. I mean, you, you look at this. Is that weird? You look at this, though. You look at this and you see that, man, the entertainment industry, it's like it's training us from the beginning to be centered around this fight for the girl. Centered around this fight for love. And if it's not in the movies and TV, it's in the books. I mean, Twilight, Hunger Games, I'm sure Harry Potter had some crush on some intergalactic space witch or whatever that was all about. And if it's not the books, uh, I had to get that in there. Uh, if it's not the books, then it's, it's the music. And it's, it's seriously, it's like we're conditioned from birth to fight for this romantic ideal. And, and just an example, uh, I had this huge crush on this girl from kindergarten to sixth grade, same girl, uh, elementary school. Her name was Haley. Man, she... I don't, I don't know if y'all remember this, but she had, you know, this, this was the late 80s, early 90s, okay? And she had the, the, the late 80s, early 90s, big uh, uh, curl bangs where they like use like a half a can or a whole can of hairspray and it'd get it like a foot high. And she had that thing going on, man. She was a good looking girl. And uh, like, like for, for us then, the way, that we would, the way that we would flirt with girls is during carpool uh, where we're waiting on our moms to pick us up or during recess, either way, there's rocks around. So we throw rocks at the girls that we liked, and they throw them back. And, but anyways, I, man, I, 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 I totally dug this girl. And, uh, and she really liked me too. In fact, uh, for Valentine's Day one year, she, uh, she got a, a bottle of cologne from her dad. Uh, I don't think he knew that, he, that she took it. It was like half empty. And she made like this necklace out of it for me. And it, no one, because I stunk. Uh, she, she really liked me. It was a, it was a sweet gift. Um, but here's the thing. About second grade, this guy uh, named Brody transferred in. And uh, yeah, boo for Brody. And he really liked Haley too. And so, I mean, he immediately, and he saw that Haley totally liked me. So he, he began to kind of fight for her, fight for her attention. And it was so pathetic, y'all. Like in recess, we were super competitive in recess and we had these ongoing football games and stuff. And, uh, and we'd, be, we'd be playing football in recess and he would, like, like, over here is the building, okay, this is the end of the field, and then over here is more of the playground where all the girls would play, and the guys are in the middle playing, and some girls are mixed in. And, and uh, he would run for a ball, and he'd make a catch, and he'd fall, and, like, maybe fall wrong, and so he'd fall on the ground. He'd be like, oh, you know, he'd, hear, he'd hurt his leg. But as soon as he'd fall and realize he hurt himself, he'd, he'd quince, quince, quince in pain. I don't know if that's a word. Whatever. Uh, so he'd do that in pain, and then, he would, and then he would stop, and he'd look around. He'd look for Haley. 
And he'd see Haley with her friends over there doing whatever girls did at recess. And he'd run over there and he would fall on the ground in front of Haley and be like, oh, oh. And the girls, of course, you know, they're like, oh, Brody, what's wrong? What's wrong? And so they'd, you know, totally like start being all caring for him and everything. And, and over time, I think he kind of stole my, my main squeeze in, in, in uh, elementary school. But it's really funny because it was really ridiculous to see this fight play out between us because what happened in elementary school for us, and this is totally true, like we, we, we began this constant battle over this one girl. And in junior high, we kind of lost track of each other. But in high school, we ended up going to, to rival high schools. And we both played basketball. And so every time that we'd play, we'd play at least twice a year and sometimes in the, in the playoffs. Man, it, we were competitors regardless of whether we were playing each other. But when we would play each other, it was just heated and crazy. And we typically, he usually had a crush or a girlfriend that was at the game and same for me. And so like, Knowing that was going on, the, the heat, the, the, the rival was just super heated and this, and this fighting just carried over into high school. And I share all that to say, it's interesting how it really is like we're conditioned to fight for this, to fight for the girl. And, and it's, it's really interesting because you look now where we are and though it manifests itself in a totally different way, I mean, we don't throw rocks at girls to flirt with them and we don't do what we did over in the, on the playground to get their attention. Well, most of us don't, I guess, but, but like we still are fighting for the girl. And, and, and Valentine's Day, it's kind of centered around this idea of, of fighting for romance or, or fighting for love or fighting for the, that, that person you have a crush on. And, and here's why I say all this. What if you spend your entire life fighting for the wrong thing? We look at what Paul says here in, in verse 18, and he says, fight the good fight. Now, I want us to pay attention to, to some details in that phrase tonight, because details are really important. You look at that phrase, there's four words. In those four words, you've got a, a verb, an article, a, an adjective, and a noun, okay? Now, if you were to look at those four words, fight the good fight, a little grammar for you, I think that was right. If you were to look at those four words, and somebody told you, you need to, you need to preach, or you need to do a Bible study, Based on the single most important word out of those four, which word would you choose? I'm just going to tell you, you got, really you have a 33.333% chance of getting this right because fight is in there twice, and then you got good and the. So 33.3, one out of three chance here. Which word would you choose? Some of you said fight. Good. Anybody going to go for that little one? You know, I'll tell you this. You don't already see this coming. I really think the most important word in, in this phrase is the word the. In grammar, and let me explain why. In grammar, uh, you have definite articles and indefinite articles. A, a definite article is a word that, that points to a very particular noun. A, a definite article is a word that points to a very specific noun. An indefinite article is a word that does not point to a particular noun or another particular object. Are you following what I'm saying? I know it's grammar. Y'all don't want to think about this tonight. But in English grammar, uh, the definite article is the word the. The indefinite article is the word a. Very good. So the word the is the most important word in this phrase because Look at what happens when you replace the word the, the definite article, with a, the indefinite article. Instead of Paul challenging Timothy to fight the good fight, he would be saying to Timothy, fight a good fight. Now think about the difference there. The text says fight the good fight. But if we don't pay attention to that definite article and we replace it with the indefinite a, fight a good fight, it completely changes it. I mean, it really turns into, when you think about it, like the mantra or the, or the anthem of our culture today that says, man, follow your dreams. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. And whatever your ambition is, whatever you're gonna set out to do, don't let anything or anyone get in the way of that. That's the anthem of our world And if that was what Paul said to Timothy, then, then no longer would what Timothy was fighting for matter as long as whatever it was, Timothy fought for it with everything that he had. But 
But Paul didn't say fight a good fight. He said fight the good fight. Therefore, meaning that, that, Timothy was fighting, that, that what Timothy was fighting for did matter. So, so my next question now is, so what is the good fight, the good fight? What is it? You know, we're really here going back to what we looked at the very first week of this study. You're going to hear me say this over and over throughout this semester looking at this letter. The very first week of this study, we, we really answered the question, what is this good fight, by, by asking the question, well, what are we supposed to do now? And we saw that, that Paul answers the question, what are we supposed to do now, based on the answer to the question, who are we? And he answers the question of who we are in 1 Timothy 3.15. He calls us three things. He calls us what? God's household or God's family. He calls us the church of the living God or the moving God. And he calls us the pillar and foundation of the truth. So that being said, or that based on those things, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to fight for is if we're God's family, then we're supposed to act like God's family. And as God's family, we want his family to grow, so we're supposed to reproduce, like spiritually reproduce. And if we're the church of the living God, the church of the moving God, then we're supposed to move with God. When God moves, we move. And if we're the pillar and foundation of the truth, then that means we're to defend and proclaim the truth. But I think the one that really sums it up is that pillar analogy. The fight summed up in the fact that we're at the pillar of the truth. Our fight, the good fight, is to fight <clears throat> to hold Jesus as high as we possibly can. And this is really important to know. We have to know who we are because we have to know what it is we're supposed to be fighting for. I've, I've talked a lot in the past couple weeks about my fraternity, and I think it's because we're in the middle of UNT and T-Dub with, with Rush and pledging, so it's been on my mind. But, but going back to college, my, my fraternity, there was another fraternity at my school uh, that we absolutely hated. And uh, one of the guys, one night, one of the guys from that other fraternity uh, began calling one of the guys in my fraternity and uh, was basically starting to talk just a bunch of trash, saying, dude, I, I, I want to fight you. I want to kill you. Like, let's do this. And to make a long story short, like where, where one person in our fraternity goes, everybody goes. It was the same for their frat. And it turned into one of these old school, like, meet me behind the clubhouse brawl, uh, except it wasn't meet me behind the clubhouse. Instead, it was this place called Clear Lake, which Clear Lake is not what it sounds like. Uh, Clear Lake was about 15 minutes out into the woods, Arkansas woods. And uh, this is, mind you, the middle of the night. And it was called Clear Lake. I don't know why, because you get there, the lake is like pitch black. Even during the day, you can't see through it. Uh, there's gators in it and all this. It's weird. There, there's gators there in Arkansas because they, they bring them in to kill the beavers to help them with the logging industry. Anyways, didn't want you to think I was lying about the gators. So there's gators in it. it it's, really, it's really spooky, okay? And, and there, was this, there was this dirt-like area next to the lake, this clearing in the trees, and that's where they were like, all right, let's meet here. Now, now me personally, I'm trying to call one other dude who was in their fraternity, which I knew he would not want this fight to happen, as did I, I didn't want the fight to happen. So we're trying to like calm our guys down, which wasn't working. So we finally just compromised and said, okay, I'll see you out there. And so we decided to meet out there and here's kind of how it went down for me. Uh, the, the other frat uh, was, was already there and we all drove up, we caravanned in, my fraternity, we all caravanned in, we pulled up at the same time, got out of our cars at the same time, it was kind of sweet actually. And, but, but when we pulled up, it was, it was crazy. There was, I mean, there's, there's about 30 of their fraternity there. Okay, they're all kind of bunched up, getting fired up. And then there's, there's people somehow found out about this fight that it was going down. So these people had, had pulled in their cars and basically kind of made this, I don't know how many cars there were, that were there, but this semi-ring, okay? Some were pointing their headlights in to point light on the battleground. And then some had backed their trucks in and had put lawn chairs in the back of their truck and brought some coolers and were just there for the entertainment. So we pull up and it's like, as soon as we get out of the car, like it's just this mad dash and, and it's, it's all of a sudden there's just like two lines of people just up in each other's face like, oh, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna eat your kids and you know, talking all this crazy trash. And, and me and this other guy, we're trying to stop the fight. We're trying to, you know, nobody's throwing punches yet, which is good. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't really working, but eventually it got to a point where everybody in both fraternities decided that these two guys, the ones who were calling and talking trash to each other needed to be the ones that, that fought, the only ones that fought. I didn't like that, but it was better than all 40 of us going after it. So these two guys uh, just started fighting, I mean, wailing on each other. <clears throat> and everybody else is kind of standing around, and we're all chill at this point. We're like, hey, you know, this is fun, this is cool. But then somebody who was sitting up in their truck uh, watching throws a bottle, and it hits one of their guys in the face. He didn't see where it came from, so he just turns to the closest guy from my fraternity and just goes, boom, and then somebody sees him throw a punch, so he throws a punch, and then somebody sees him throw a punch, and it's like this domino effect of all these punches are being thrown, and, and I was standing next to the guy from the other frat, and we're just leaning up against this car going, well, so I haven't talked to you in a while. You know, how, how you been? And 
while they're all brawling out here. And it was, man, it was crazy. So at the end of this, though, we're all walking back to our cars. And, and guys are like, it was bad. But this one guy, he, he looks at me from, from my front and he goes, how did that even happen? <laughs> I mean, he's like dripping blood. He's like, how did that even happen? Like, like how did, I thought it was just those two guys fighting. Like, how did we end up fighting everybody? And it's really interesting that he, that he asked that question because I'm bringing all of this. We need to know why we're here and we need to know what it is we're supposed to be fighting for. Because if we don't, then we're just gonna hop in to, to the fight that everybody around us is, is fighting in. Did that make sense? If we don't know why we're here and what we're supposed to be fighting for, then we'll just hop into a fight, any fight, a fight, because everyone else around us is, is fighting. So if it's the fight for love, romance, then we're gonna hop in that too, because we see a punch thrown and we're like, oh, I'm gonna throw a punch. Or we see, you know, the fight for this, and so we see a punch thrown, so I'm going to throw a punch if you're a lefty. You know, so we just hop in the fight. But here's what you need to hear me say tonight. Some of you will spend the rest of your life fighting for the wrong thing. Some of you, even after us talking about this, seeing what God's word specifically and directly says in regards to this, some of you will spend the rest of your life fighting for something that doesn't matter. And if it's not... If it's not romance and love, then it'll be money and retirement. And if it's not money and retirement, then it'll be success and fame. And if it's not success and fame, then it'll be something other than that. So the challenge tonight first is this. Don't fight a good fight. Fight the good fight. I want you you to see this, though. Um, Backing up, really, in that phrase, he says, fight the good fight, Timothy. Now, there's twice in there the word fight. The the second time, it's a noun. The first time, what kind of word is the word fight? It's a verb. What do verbs do? They do action. They act. They do something. Now, when you think about it, Paul really could have used any verb he wanted to here. And so, so let's, let's get creative here. Like, what, what are some verbs he could have used? And, and when I say creative, I don't mean you have to stick with the script. It doesn't have to be something that means the same thing as fight. Like, any verb that he could have put here, what might he have chosen to put here? I'll, I'll give you, I'll just, I'll just throw one out. He could have said DVR the fight or videotape the good fight. Now, he wouldn't have, obviously, culturally, technologically. But, I mean, he could have said tape, videotape the fight, the good fight. What else could he have said? Smell. Smell, smell the good fight. All right. <laughs> what else? Huh? Love the good fight. Spice the good fight? Okay. Somebody else. Watch the good fight. Huh? Dance at the good fight. What else? Huh? Okay, so also going on dancing theme here. I'm not going to try that. Sing at the good fight. I mean, there's so many things. Watch at the good fight. Start the good fight, you know. Uh, sabotage the good fight. Attend the good fight. Yeah, finish the good. I mean, there's so many things that he could have said. But the point is, he didn't say any of those things. The point is that he said, fight the good fight. Fight. He used the word fight. And, in, and the word that he uses here, like classically, outside of the Bible in their time, was used to say, wage war. Or engage in the battle like a soldier. And I want to I, I say this, and I'm sorry if this offends you, but I'm going to say it anyways. If I were an outsider looking in and observing this, this group, <clears throat> I would probably think that instead of Paul saying fight the good fight, he had said watch the good fight. Or maybe talk like you want to fight. Because the majority of this people, the people in this room are doing one of two things. They're either watching the fight or you're talking like you want to fight. And let me explain what I mean here. There's, there's watchers. If you're a watcher, you're a spectator, not a participant, like a spectator at a basketball game. So, so you're in the stands watching. Or actually, really better analogy would be you're on the bench, spectating, watching the action on the court. My, my, my freshman year in college, I played basketball, played basketball. Really, I had the best courtside season tickets in the house. I spent most of my time on the bench watching the action on the court. 
But the difference here in, the, in what I'm trying to get you to see is the watchers, they're not sitting on the bench because the coach hasn't called you into play. There's, you're, you're sitting on the bench because when coach has called your number, you've refused to go in. So some of you are, are, are watching the good fight. And let me, let me tell you why I think this is. I think it's because of fatigue. You're worn out. You've expended all of your energy on, on other fights over here and over there. So by the time you, you actually get to this fight or think about this fight or notice this fight, you're pooped. You've got nothing left. So some of you are, are watchers. Some of you I would think that, that Paul said, watch the good fight. Others I would think that Paul said, talk like you want to fight instead of fight the good fight. So, so for you who are talkers, if you're a talker, you're one of those people that, that talks like, like they're ready to fight. They smack talk, like, come on, man. You know, like you get up and you do that little, that little punk move, you know, guys, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you get up in their face and you're like, what, what, what? But, but you're, you're too scared to throw that punch. You never have the courage to throw that first punch. You know, a basketball game is the perfect place to do this because there's referees. And so like, like guys like me, man, I talk all kinds of trash on the basketball court. Like, man, I... You know, he's dribbling the ball at the court. Man, I'm, seriously, man, you, you always look that ugly. You're terrible, you know, and just saying, you know, whatever comes to my mind, I guess. That wasn't very good smack talk. I got better than that. But, I mean, basketball court is a great place to, like, talk like you want to fight because you can say whatever you want knowing or at least hoping that the refs will get there before you actually need to throw a punch. You know, so you're talking smack, you're talking smack, looking for the ref. Come on, ref, get in here really quick. And then right when you're acting like, oh, yeah, you, you better be glad he got here in the middle because I was, I was rounding it up. I was going to punch you in the face. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but the refs, the refs get in the way. And if you're a talker, you'll talk like you want to fight, but you'll never throw the first punch. And let me explain why I think this is. It's not fatigue, but fear. You're afraid of what the consequences of fully engaging in the battle would be. And you don't, you don't trust the promises that God has given you of protection and of provision. You're afraid of what you might have to give up. I mentioned a guy a couple weeks ago, William Wilberforce. In his biography called Amazing Grace, the author, he's talking about the British church. And this was a couple hundred years ago. But he's talking about how the British church used to be. He says, if before the British faith had been like a great and noble lion... It would now become something more like a lap dog that would never or that never roared nor dared to bite, and that could be fed bits of cheese and petted when one was in the mood to do so. You know, you hear that term or that phrase, uh, he's all bark, no bite. And that's kind of a diss. But the author here, he takes it even a step further. He says, they don't even have a bark. There's definitely no bite because they don't even have a bark. They're not a lion, they're a lap dog. And, and I read that quote and I think, man, what about us? Are you a lion or are you a lap dog? Man, Paul, he intentionally didn't say watch the good fight or talk like you want to fight. He said fight the good fight. And so the second thing I need you to hear tonight is don't let fatigue or fear keep you from fighting the good fight. And I want you to know four people uh, this is just four, four examples of people in this ministry who, who I would say are fighting the good fight. The first example I want to give you is uh, Megan Lee and David Sanderson. I think they're both here tonight. But Megan Lee and David Sanderson, they, they are fighting the good fight. And let me, let me explain this, okay? They've had a vision for about a year, year and a half now of doing a, a project called Art for Africa. And, and their heart is, is twofold. Um, one is their heart is to reach out to and minister to the artists uh, here in Denton. Um, and, and the other side of that is to minister to a, a, uh, a group of people on the other side of the planet in Africa. And so they've been developing this, this plan, this strategy in which to do that. I don't want to give away all the secrets because it's going to be awesome. But, but they're, they're wanting to hold an art show, uh, planning on this April to hold an art show uh, out on the square. And people will come. There will be a cover charge. And part of that money will go to support the artists. And then the other part of that money will be to go to raise money to put a well in, in a village in Africa. And, and they're fighting for this. Like they're giving up stuff in order to accomplish this. Um, another two I want to share with you are, are Matt Vansel and a guy named Isaac. Now his last name's kind of crazy, uh, so I'm just going to, I like this better anyways, Velociraptor. His, his last name kind of sounds like that, so we're just going to say Matt Vansel and Isaac Velociraptor. It's way cooler. 
But, but, but Matt and Isaac, um, both of them, their, their story, I don't think they'll mind me sharing just a little bit, is, is they, they come from the background, the scene of, of, of partying and being on Fry Street and doing that whole shindig. Um, but God has completely, by his grace, transformed their lives as he has many of your lives um, in my life. And, and so in that, the Lord has really put on their heart to, to now, as they continue to pursue Christ, uh, to turn back towards Fry Street except in a different way now to, to get other people to go with them and minister to people on Fry Street, meet people on Fry Street, build relationships with people on Fry Street. They go out on Thursday nights. Uh, there was an announcement at the beginning about that. Um, meet at 10 at Matt's house and spend a little time kind of gathering everybody together, praying, and then they go out to Fry Street and they spend midnight, you know, till one or two in the morning doing this. It's people who are, who are not watching the fight and not talking like they want to fight, but they're fighting. So don't let fatigue or fear keep you from fighting the good fight. Don't let fatigue from fighting other not good fights or worthless fights. And don't let fear of the consequences keep you from fighting the good fight. But let's go into chapter 2. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I urge them, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Paul really turns a corner here. And in this corner, now we're on this street for the, rest of the, for the rest of the way this semester. Because in the first chapter, he takes most of his time, aside from the command to Timothy to command the false teachers to stop teaching false things, he spends the rest of the time really to Timothy assessing the situation in Ephesus. And then we get to chapter two and he turns his corner into now giving some pretty, some pretty clear instructions to Timothy of what to do in Ephesus, how to lead in Ephesus, and pretty clear instructions to the churches in Ephesus and how they're supposed to act and respond. And he starts off by saying, I urge then, first of all, the word then is like therefore. And whenever you see those words, you need to see the preceding context. And the preceding context we just looked at. In light of the challenge to Timothy to fight the good fight, he says, okay, now then, therefore, I urge First of all, now Paul uses this phrase, phrase I urge, a lot in his, in his writing. One of the most popular texts from Paul is Romans 12.1, where he says, I urge you then, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He uses this 17 different times in his writing. And whenever he uses this phrase, I urge, you know what he's about to say is important. I mean, if we were dogs and we heard a whistle, our ears would perk up. It's the same effect that it should have on us. When we hear Paul say, I urge, our ears should perk up. Our tails should start wagging because we know he's about to say something important. He's got something for us. But you notice he doesn't just stop with that. He says, I urge you then, first of all, of the 17 times that Paul uses this phrase, I urge, only once does he pair it with the phrase, first of all, which tells us of everything that he's urging us to do, this is of first importance. This is the biggest thing. If you had a list, this would be number one and there would be no close second. So he's saying, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. The challenge from Paul is to pray. And there's a few different ways he's challenging us to do this or things that he challenges us to pray about. He, he lists four, which they're really not that distant from each other. They're very similar. In fact, he's almost kind of repeating himself four times for emphasis. But he says, request, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. And the point here is this. There's different ways in which you can communicate to God. Different ways in which we pray. He mentions intercession. We pray for other people. We intercede on other people's behalf. Like this dude is sick or she doesn't know Jesus or he doesn't know Jesus. So we pray for those people. And then, and then thanksgiving, thank you, God, for like who you are, your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for what you did today for me. And then, and then he talks about requests, and then he just says prayers. And, and the gist that he's getting at there is there's also that personal interaction, that personal just conversation, you spilling your heart to God, God spilling his heart to you. And then he goes on, he says, for kings, so I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, and intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, then there's that dash 
for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. He goes on now and he says, pray for your leaders, specifically your leaders in government, specifically your leaders in government in your state, uh, in your nation, and around the world. And here's, here's something I want to say about this. One, you, you, you hear him go on. He, he says, uh, pray for this so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is not, um, though it's been interpreted this way sometimes, this is not pray so that we can live this casual, middle-class, comfortable life. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, man, pray that God will put godly leaders in leadership so that you and I as Christians can freely move and freely work and freely share the gospel. Remember the context in which Paul's writing this. He's been in and out of prison. He's probably in prison as he writes this because the, the men in leadership were terrible. Nero was killing Christians. And he says, pray for these leaders. God can change them. In fact, that's a bold thing to say, but if anybody, if anybody knew that God could change somebody like Nero who was killing Christians, it was Paul. Because remember Paul's story. Acts 7, Acts 8, what is he doing? He's killing a guy named Stephen. Acts 9, it says that he was breathing murderous threats, killing Christians. But you go back to that, that story with Stephen, and what, was, what happened? Stephen was being stoned by, by Paul and some other dudes, and what is Stephen doing in those last couple verses of chapter 7, verse 59 and 60? He's praying. And what's one of the things that he prays? He says, don't hold this sin against them. I mean, as he's being killed, he's praying for Paul. And what happens? Chapter 9, God changes Paul. The most unlikely person to be changed, God changes Paul. You know, the other thing I want to say about this, praying for your leaders, you know, there's, there's kind of the bandwagon now of, and I'm going to be cautious how I say this, like there's a lot of books coming out, radical, not a fan, weird, um, Christian atheist, and, and kind of books that fall in that genre that are like, man, the, the church kind of sucks right now uh, because we're, we're not facing persecution, we're living comfortably, all these things, which I agree with that. We are living too comfortably. We have, in a lot of ways, lost vision of who God's called us to be. But the danger in that is, is we start to say, well, we're, you know, look at other places in the world who are facing persecution. It's like we, we start to want that. We start to desire that. And we also start to say that we, the church, can't be the church unless we're being persecuted, which is totally false, especially in light of what Paul's saying here. Because what is he saying? He's saying pray for good leaders so that y'all can move freely and won't be persecuted by the government. And so, so what I hope that as you're reading those kinds of books and as you're reading scripture, and as you're interpreting all of this, I hope what you hear and what you see is we're in one of those moments, praise God, where we're not being persecuted like other places in the world. And we can move freely. And so we should act on that. It's kind of like being at the beach. I don't know why this thought came to my mind, but it's kind of like being at the beach. And the waves come in. And, and I don't know if when you're a little kid you collected shells, but when the waves would come in, it'd wash all that sand up and shells with it, but it's covered in the sand. And you can't see it because of the water. And the water recedes. What happens when the water recedes? It pulls that sand out, pulls the water out, and it starts to reveal all these shells. And so as a little kid, you run out there really fast, and you grab those shells, grab the shells, you know, you hold them before the water comes in. You don't want the water to touch you because you're playing that game where you don't want the water to touch you, and you get back. And, but, but that's what's happening here. That's the image that I get when I think about Paul saying, pray for this. And we, as, a, as Americans, for now, are in a moment where the water has receded, and it has pulled out the sand, and it's revealed all these little shells. It's revealed all these little people that are just waiting to be plucked for the harvest. We need to take advantage of this time to go after those people and to pull them in because eventually the water's gonna come back. So I pray that as, as you read this, that, that's what you would see. That's what you would hear. But he but goes on, verse, verse three, because this is where this whole thing for, for praying comes back. He says, this is good, and it pleases God our Savior. The challenge here is really for us to pray for everyone who does not know, yet know Jesus. Let me read verse four. I should have read that too. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul says pray. And then specifically he says pray because God wants all men to be saved. And so the challenge is pray for everyone. In fact, he uses that word up in verse one. Pray for everyone that they may be saved. You know, you look you look, you kind of break down these two verses. The first, verse three says, this is good and pleases God our Savior. God our Savior. 
That statement right there is one of the things, really the thing, that separates us and our belief system from any other religion in the world. Because all other religions, in some form or fashion, teach that you can save yourself. But the Bible, it forces us to face the reality and it forces us to be honest with ourselves and to recognize that we can't. We don't have it in us. And so that's the reason that, that Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Mormons and the list you know, goes on. That's the reason they, they think so much differently than us because their worldview, the lens through which they see and interpret everything around them is shaped by the belief that they must work daily to earn God's favor and acceptance. But, but we, on the other hand, our worldview is, is shaped by the understanding that God is our Savior. Our worldview, our, we, we, we see and experience the world through a lens that says God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then Paul goes on and he says, okay, so he says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This statement right here has huge implications on our mission and our mindset. This statement has huge implications on our mission and our mindset and the scope of how we see things because what this is saying is Jesus loves every student on your campus. Jesus wants every student at UNT and every student at TWU and every student at NCTC to be saved. And, and here's kind of where my thoughts go with this. Like I, I look and I know it's Valentine's Day, so today's a little bit different, but not really. I mean, over the past 13, 14 months, it's been incredible to see God work in this ministry and in this room. And, and, and I'm talking individually, but Tuesday nights, it's easy for me to see just physically the picture here because 12 months ago, 13 months ago, I mean, we, we, we all fit into like five, six rows right here. And now we don't. And praise God for that. But, but here's my fear in that. I mean, right now we have about half a percentage like 0.5% of the population of college students in Denton in this room, 0.5, not even a whole percentage. And my fear is, you know, we, you know, we see, man, in, in a year, this is what God's doing, which is awesome, but we kind of sit back and we revel in the excitement. And we kick our feet up like the, like the day is over, like the work is done, but the reality is we, we've barely gotten started. I mean, less than 2% of the population of 51,000 college students would, would fill this room completely. Less than 2%. And I pray that we get to that place, but I, but, I, but I pray that we never lose sight of the fact of what Paul says here about our God. He wants all men to be saved. So Paul says, the single most important thing we can and should do is pray because prayer changes things. And like I told you, of all people to know this, it was Paul. So we must get busy in praying for people to meet Jesus, and, and here's why. Verse five, for or because there's what? What's it say? For there is what? One God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. First he says, there's one God. We need to be busy praying for people to meet Jesus. And here's why. Because there's one God. How many gods are there? One. Now I realize that's not PC. And I realize that that's uh, offensive in some ways. I realize that that comes across as not tolerant and exclusive. But in case you didn't hear me the first time, there's one God. And then he goes on. He says, there's one mediator. What's a mediator? Now, actually, let me back up here to the one God. If there's one God, other people say there's other gods, but, but the Bible says there's one God. What we say is God's word says there's one God. And here's what that means. He's not just our God. He's the God of every student on campus who doesn't know him yet. And he's, he's still the God of every person in India and every person in China and every person all over the world. But then he goes on, he says there's one mediator. What's a mediator? A go-between. Yeah, that's a good one. Go-between. Somebody who stands in the middle. Somebody who stands in the gap. Somebody who stands between. Somebody who represents two parties. Somebody who represents both, both sides. 
Jesus is the only one who can represent both sides because he's the only one who is both God and man. Proven to be God by his miraculous virgin birth. Proven to be God by his miracles that he did on earth. Specifically the miracles where he showed his power over creation. Like when he gets up on the boat and the disciples are freaking out. Oh my gosh, our boat's going to die and, and drown and, and we're going to drown. And, and, then, and then Jesus, what does he do? He gets up and he says, chill out weather. And the weather just chills. And then other places where he walks on water, submit to me water, you know, become solid. And he walks across the water or whatever it was. Maybe he's just hovering. I don't know. But, but then like he shows his force over creation. So proven God by his miraculous birth. Proven God by his miracles on earth. Proven God by what else? His resurrection from the dead. But he's also man, proven to be man in his physical body. He grew like a man. He had to eat food and water to sustain his body like a man, human. He had emotions. You see, he had emotions like a human, like a man. He felt physical pain. He suffered physically like a man, and he died like a man. Muhammad, he, can, he cannot mediate between God and man because he himself was only a man, and he's dead. Buddha, he can't mediate between God and man because he himself was a man and he's dead. Oprah, she can't mediate between God and man because she's a woman and she's going to die. I wasn't saying it like that. I didn't want to say a man. I mean, I don't think she's a man. There's one God. There's one mediator, and we need to get busy praying that people will meet him. Ian Bounds, uh, he said, no man can do a great and enduring work for God who is not a man or woman of prayer. And no one can be a person of prayer who does not give much time to praying. So, so, so Paul, he's transitioned to chapter two. We're done with chapter one. And as he transitions from assessing the situation in Ephesus to giving instructions, he says very clearly this, first and foremost, we need to be people who pray. Now, if I... I've said this since my, the very first overflow that I was here teaching, I think it was before I was even technically on staff. I've said this since the beginning, that I really believe that God has called this ministry and this church to have a big impact on the college population here in Denton. I don't believe that God has called us to be a glorified babysitting service for the good old Baptist kids who go away to college. I believe that he's called us to be a catalyst for change. I believe that he's called us to be just as diverse here as the college population is out there. And I don't believe that, that God has just called us to be a local ministry, but a global ministry, globally minded, globally acting. I believe that God has called us to the 51,000 students here in Denton, 51,000 students. But you need to hear this. this. This will never happen unless we take seriously this call to pray. Uh, in 1806, there were five college students, your age, who would meet every week in this open field in Massachusetts. They all went to Williams College. You can look this up. They all went to Williams College. One of the guys, his name was Samuel J. Mills. But they would meet uh, every week in this open field to pray together and then just to discuss, you know, basically Bible studies type, type stuff. But I kind of have a feeling it was a little bit more intense than what we know. And one particular day, they went out to this open field, 1806. It was, it was, a, it was a Saturday in August. And uh, this storm was coming in. But they said, man, forget that. We're still going to go out there and meet. So they went out to this field. They, they took with them, though, uh, was a book by a guy named William Carey. Y'all heard of William Carey? Some of you, if you haven't, Wikipedia, good resource there. It's probably mostly true. Um, but, but William Carey, the name of the book that they took out there is a, is a book by him that, that was it's this long title. That's why I'm reading it. The book was An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. That was the title of the book. And it was a very controversial book for their day because what William Carey was saying in this book was, was placing the burden and the weight of world missions on the American believers' shoulders. And people didn't like that, but these five guys, they took this book out there and they began to talk about it. And, and Samuel Mills, he said, dude, we've got to get the gospel to Asia. We've got to do it. And one of the guys in the group, I can't remember his name, he said, we need to wait till the people in China become a little bit more civilized. And, and Samuel Mills was like, hold up. I think we should pray about this. And so they began to pray, and as they were praying, the storm comes rolling in. It starts to rain really hard, thunder, lightning hard. So, I mean, they're out in a the field. There really wasn't any shelter for them to take, so they started running for the closest thing they could find, which was a haystack. So they ended up 
taken shelter in this haystack where they continued to pray in the storm, continued to talk about this and continued, like I said, to pray. And after they had spent time praying, they all felt the Lord say very clearly, lay it on their hearts that we can do this if we will. That's what they walked away from there with. We can do this if we will. Four years later, 1810, in Massachusetts, the first American foreign missions agency was begun. And in 1810, America sent its first foreign mission, missionaries to Asia. One of those missionaries we've talked about before, Adoniram Judson. He was the first American missionary. He went to Burma. Very closed country at that time. Still is today, very closed today. And he suffered, but he, he got the gospel there. First like seven years of his ministry, didn't see a single person come to know Christ but he persevered. Anyways, coming back to America. 1810, first missions, mission agency has begun based off of what these five college students prayed for in a haystack. But quickly after that agency in 1810 began, all these other American agencies began. And then 80 years later, a guy in Luther something, I can't remember his last name, but this Luther guy, he attributed his, he attributed his desire to start this new missions agency that would have the goal of sending 100,000 college students all over the world for the purpose of missions. He attributed that passion, that model, that desire to these five guys who prayed for it at this haystack prayer meeting. So that was, that was 80 years later. 206 years later, which brings us to 2012, we are still being impacted by these five college students who got together and they prayed in a haystack or on a haystack or near a haystack that God would awaken these people's hearts to take the gospel to the nations and we are still being impacted by that. I wanna read you this quote. Um, it says, these five had no idea that all of history was watching that day and what weight of responsibility lay on them. One of the greatest, <clears throat> one of the greatest movements of all time started with a group of college students who took seriously the call to pray. So here's, here's the, the question that I want to leave you with tonight. What will be the legacy of your generation? I mean, when people talk about the haystack prayer meeting, the reality is, you, you, you dig a little further, there were multiple meetings like that going on all over the place. Students. So what will the legacy of your generation be and what will be the effects of your work and your faith on the next generation? Don't just fight a good fight, fight the good fight. And don't let fatigue that comes from fighting these other worthless fights and fear of consequences keep you from fighting the good fight. And first and foremost, we need to be people who pray.